Well, I am grateful for the opportunity to continue to work through this letter of James with, with you all. Um, it's been, of course, a blessing for me. Um, it always is. It always is for um, the preacher to get to, uh, to dive into, into God's word to, uh, to such a point that he can heartily teach it and preach it. Well, I uh, want to remind everyone that at the introduction of this sermon series on James, uh, I had mentioned that uh, the theme of this book could be stated uh, as consistency, consistency in faith and practice. Well, this, and I mentioned this already, that this would equate to wise living. Um, and not just simply focused on being wise for oneself, but being wise for the benefit of the local church. You know, it's been said m multiple times, uh, Christianity is not an individualistic religion, okay? But being wise for the benefit of the local church, um, individualism is, is a dangerous thing in the Christian faith. Um, the very context of what is true biblical love simply requires that it's exercised in the midst of community. James has been teaching this to us so far through this letter and will continue to do so. Well, true faith is part and parcel of wise living. In our passage today, which uh, is... A very well-known passage uh, in among us believers, a contested one in many different ways. Um, well, in our passage today, James addresses the quality of one's faith. Remember that as an overarching understanding, the quality of one's faith. He, he's been doing that all along. Um, it's, like I said, it's one of the most debated passages in Scripture. Although, truly, it's not really that difficult to understand. It, it just isn't. So, I invite you to please turn in your Bibles to chapter 2 in the book of James as I read our passage beginning on verse 14 through the end of the chapter. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, Go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one. You do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Do you want to be shown, oh foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? 
you see that faith was active along with his works. And faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. And he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. And in the same way, was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. This, this passage, I want you to, to view it as a part of James's um, overall thematic argument of the letter that we've been wrestling through so far. That's, it's striving toward a genuine faith. A genuine faith and, and that much becoming more closer to becoming perfect and complete. It's, it's helpful to keep that context in mind of what James has been laboring to do as we consider this passage. Now we, got, we must really consider overall um, what he's been driving up to this point. Um, because it's, it's, it's rather easy to lose the forest through the trees here in this passage. I, I think it is. Uh, we can be distracted by James's theology in light of usually a better-known Pauline theology. We'll get to that. Well, just as James argued for doing the word and not just hearing the word, so he argues for works that evidence a true faith. Not faith with nothing good to show for it. Now he isn't trying to tell the church to simply have faith in God. He is warning them of professing Christ, but at the same time having a worthless faith because it does not produce good fruit and it cannot save as we just read, it cannot save. Well, God willing, my goal this morning is to expand on this with the following couple of points. First, beware, dear Christian, beware of worthless faith that cannot save. And secondly, beware of worthless faith that makes a hypocrite. Now, my desire is to see you all appreciate the urgency here in James's tone in this, in this passage, the weightiness of the matter that's at hand. Because Jesus says in Matthew 7, verses 21 through 23, he says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. So, point one, beware a worthless faith that cannot save. You know, from the start of this passage, James draws the reader in. He really, I think, draws us in. You know, he says, 
my brothers. You know, there's a sincerity in his plea for them to consider the question that he has at hand here. It is so important that they do listen to him because it is a matter of life and death. It's that serious. Well, first, what does he do here? He, he questions their reasoning. What good is it if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Questions their reasoning. Now, he asks, can a faith without works save a person? That is, save a person from hell, uh, from everlasting judgment. In this, he shows truly how serious this matter is. Uh, he expects them, you know, this is a rhetorical question, of course. He expects them to answer back, no, such a faith cannot save. It cannot save. Well, the truth is, the truth is it is likely that James is rather confident how at least some of his readers would answer his question. You know, perhaps, who knows, perhaps he has witnessed some shameful behavior. He's already dealt with some serious matters in terms of instruction. Perhaps he's witnessed some shameful behavior or, uh, you know, his conduct on becoming a Christian. Uh, or maybe he's some, heard some credible stories. You know, there may likely have been a concerning lack of love among some of the believers, uh, the, the readers here. So, you know, how can we suspect this? How can I make this, this claim? Well, just consider what he's already said in his letter so far. You know, there were, were likely a number of weak Christians among them. You know, at the beginning of this letter, what did he do? He, he impressed very heavily upon them their need to seek wisdom from God. They needed to be taught this. Prayerfully, without doubting God's goodness and power, seek wisdom from God. There, there was likely a number of Sunday-only Christians uh, among them. You know, hearers only, not doers of the word. There was likely some who possessed a worthless religion. You know, void, void of the love that considers those who are in need. And yet entangled in the unscrupulous affairs of the world. Those things that stain. And there was likely some who lacked mercy. Lacked mercy. Uh, played favorites. Thus dishonoring the, the poor brother among them. This sin of partiality. You know, all of this, you know, it, it spelled out a worthless, workless faith. And they must be warned of their precarious position before God because it is a very precarious position before God. You know, it is a kind of blasphemy to disguise an impure life under a profession of faith. Do you understand that? It's a violation of the third commandment, whereby the name of God is blasphemed. You know, how? You know, claiming a faith in Christ, professing him, 
and yet not believing in him. Thus using his name in a false way. I know there may be some who, who listen to this sermon. Maybe some here among you um, who thinks this is harsh. Uh, James is being harsh. But this is truth. Now, there will be some who come to God someday uh, before his throne. Now, they're ready to be judged for what he did or did not do with nothing to show but effectless faith. You know, in this whole discourse, the apostle shows not what justifies, but who is justified. Again, let me repeat that. He shows not what justifies, but who is justified. Not what faith does, but what faith is. What true faith is. You know, his focus is on what it looks like. What does faith truly look like? He uses an illustration in our passage um, to offer an answer to his question in verse 14. I'm always appreciative when the author of Scripture already gives me the illustrations. Makes my job a little bit easier, I guess. Well, he illustrates that just telling someone who is in true material need to essentially be well without actually giving them something that satisfies their need, that it, it does the person no good, and it, it truly does them no good. The person who says, go, it does the, them no good as well. Well, the same thing goes for faith without works. It does the person no good. The person in need goes without clothing, without food, and the person professing such a faith dies in his sin. Again, you may be think that this is a careless statement I'm making. But read for yourself what James says at the end of verse 17. Faith by itself, it does, if it does not have works, is dead. Can a dead faith save? It's not poetry we're reading here, and it's, it's not prophecy. This is to be taken literally. Friends, this absolutely must capture your attention. All of us. The illustrated un here that he, he's given to us, undoubtedly it reflects conditions that are among at least some of his readers. Now, I'm sure that James remembered, remembered what uh, G Jesus taught in the telling of the parable of the tenants to the Pharisees in Matthew 21, where, what's he do? He likens these, these Pharisees unto those insolent and murderous tenants who eventually even killed the son of their master, hoping for the inheritance for themselves. You know, those Pharisees listening to Jesus tell his parable, they were supposed to be the skilled shepherds who cared for Israel. But instead, they only put on an appearance of godliness. Their 
so-called faith was dead. It was hollow. It was nothing but selfish works to show for it. Bad fruit. Now James also may be thinking here an allusion uh, where Jesus is teaching in the parable here of also in the book of Matthew, the sheep and the goats. This also kind of fits the, the illusion. Now, God says that Jesus will grant entrance into the kingdom on the basis of works of love, but dismiss from his presence those who fail to care for those in need. This is good instruction. We need to be reminded of these things. And, you know, those receiving James's letter who were rich, and there were some believed to be among them who were rich in this way, um, that they should feel ashamed if they would only offer a few cheap words, you know, wishful thinking, in the place of loving actions done in sincerity, loving actions. First John 3, verse 18, the apostle writes, Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. Friends, a good way to discover if you have been deceitful in your dealings with God is to compare it with your own dealings with other people. Coming to verse 17, I believe this verse is the key verse in this passage. Uh, there may be some that would call their profession faith, that I have faith. Their words make it look like faith. It sounds like faith. But in itself, it's dead. James does here is he illustrates its worthlessness. It's a dead faith. It is a false faith. It can't do any more than a dead body can. Now, why is such a faith described as being dead? It's because, friends, it was never united to Christ. It was never united that source of life. You see, a true faith, it plants us squarely in Christ. And we receive our life from him. You know, Paul says in Galatians chapter 2, he says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Concerning this, what James has written, even what, what Paul has said here, Puritan Thomas Manton, he wrote that faith is the life that animates the whole body of obedience. A true faith should evidence itself in obedience, these good works. So friends, ask yourself regarding your faith. Does it receive life from Christ? And so, therefore, does it act upon this life-giving faith? Now, would you will be willing to stand before God on the day of judgment with faith 
that is fruitless? I suspect you all would say no. I would suspect those who only have a profession would say no. But that is not a plea that anyone should want to take before God on the day of judgment. You know, people have a tendency to only think about the here and now. We do. And we worry about a lot of things in the future. But we're not often have a tendency to be wise about and planning for that, right? We, we, we really often just think about the here and now, not things eternal um, in our natural state. You know, with, again, no, little to no consideration for the eternal, and certainly for those who are without true faith. Now, it's good that one would examine himself in this way, asking, can the faith that's seen in my life, can such a faith stand before God? Can it save can the faith that you have stand before God? You know, don't be satisfied with just having one active faith in your repertoire to look back on. Okay? The Christian life is one where there should be growth, there should be const- a consistency, a constancy that's being struggled for in this life, this, this, this life of sanctification. And the words that you speak, that you show, you know, what they, 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 when you say these things, when a person who only has but mere, merely a profession of faith, the words that they speak shows they know what they're, they should know what they're, and understand the truth. Because they're using those words. They just don't believe. They become mere words only, you know, hearers only. And they, they show a lack of heart to carry out those things that Scripture calls us to. Again, those words, those very words that they themselves speak. Words are cheap, aren't they? Words are cheap. Words alone are cheap. Compliments they don't cost us anything. So will you serve your God with something that costs nothing? David refused to offer a gift to God that cost him nothing. Well, James told us what a person's pure and an undefiled religion looks like. It is one that is marked by good works, such as caring for those who are needy. It is also evidenced by good works, such as keeping yourself unstained by the world, keeping yourself chaste and pure. And beloved, for your own sake, judge your faith by the evidences of the results of grace working in you. Are there good works to show for the grace that is you claim that you claim to work in you. And yes, judge others by their works. Judge others by their works also. And consider this regarding a brother or sister with good works to show for their faith. When you witness a brother or sister doing good works, in profession of their faith, don't judge their motives. 
We, we sometimes have a tendency to do that. We, we want to judge motives. Yeah, their profession may be false. Their works may be a show. But we need to leave the heart to God. We need to leave the heart to God. And that, that's good counsel, friends, for a harmony in the body. It is. Now, you may suspect something odd is going on, right? So be wise, be prayerful, certainly, with your dealings with others. But remember Christ's words. With the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use it, it will be measured to you. Meaning, you know, that undue harshness, that judgmental attitude that you may show to others will result in you being treated the same way by God. It takes wisdom here, friends. Where there is life, there will be action. A godly faith is no different. In Jude 12, hypocrites are said to be without fruit and uprooted, twice dead. Twice dead. You know, dead in their natural condition and dead in their profession of faith. Twice dead. And then uprooted, lacking the life-giving influence from the Spirit of Christ. Which brings me to my second point here. A worthless faith that makes a hypocrite. Now this section in our passage is, uh, begins with verse 18 and, and takes us to the end of the chapter. Where James is essentially arguing the point that he made in verse 17. Okay? Now he puts up a challenge starting off in verse 18. Introducing a straw man uh, for an, an imaginary debate. Okay? You know, this person, this straw man, is a hypocrite who argues that a faith, a true faith, rather, can exist with no good works to show for it, no, no good fruit. So that's the argument that James is putting up here in this straw man. Show me your faith, he says. Show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. Now, we're getting into some contested areas here now, okay? And we will be. Um, but it's not that difficult to understand. You know, actually, in keeping with the theme of, of James's letter regarding wise living in the community of Christ, James is arguing the matter of what wise living, what skillful living looks like, just as much as he's arguing what faithful living looks like. To James, these things go hand in hand. Faithful living, wise, skillful living. Well, the dispute that James imagined here does not lie so much between, you know, f- between faith and works. That's not where the dispute necessarily is. Not as much as it is between a faith that's pretended, you see, and a faith that is revealed by works. Now, this, this person's faith claims the belief that God exists, even that God is one. Okay? Now, we should also recall that perhaps a majority of, 
James's readers here are Jewish Christians for whom the, the Shema would have been among the most basic of beliefs. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. But what does James do? He, he goes on to scorn such a faith as only believing in the same thing that demons believe. Believe and shudder. In fact, the more these demons think about God, the more they shudder. Now this truly is the misery of demons, of damned men and natural men. That the, the horror of God's judgment stands before them. That they cannot think of God without horror. Whereas for the, the saint, there is peace, there is comfort. There is the God in whom they enjoy. These, these demons, they have an ascent that causes horror, that causes torment. And what I mean by an ascent is they, they express an agreement. They express agreement. I believe this. I know this is true. Did you know that? Yeah, the, of course the demons know that Christ died for, this, um, for the sins of, um, of the world. They, they know that. You know, someone who has a worthless faith may very well say, yes, I, I know that. And I agree with that. They don't have a faith that causes, however, a confidence and a peace. The proper fruit that comes from a justifying faith. You know, Thomas Manton, he wrote, quote, The lowest act of faith is called believing. The lowest act of faith is called believing. Now, certainly a true faith in God evidence itself in belief, clearly. But someone claiming to believe with no other evidences of grace in their life has a false, dead faith. This is what James is telling us. True faith, it unites us to Christ. I want to borrow more from, from this Puritan here. It knows Christ. It knows his person, true faith. It's not only an assent to a gospel proposition. It's not only that. You are not justified by that, but by being one with Christ. It's always about the object of one's faith, not faith in and of itself. A person may be right in opinion and in judgment, but at the same time, in their heart, or vile affections. True believing is not an act of the understanding. Not, not alone. Certainly it's part of it, the understanding. It most definitely is a part of that, the understanding. But it's not that alone. It's, it's a work of all your heart. 
It's true. As you read this, and we're more steeped in Pauline theology, that some of these expressions of Scripture may seem to give a heavy weight on an ascent of a gospel proposition. 1 John 4, verse 2. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. 1 Corinthians 12, verse 3. Therefore, I want you to understand that no one speaking in the Spirit of God ever says Jesus is accursed. And no one can say Jesus is Lord except in the Holy Spirit. But, friends, these passages... They either show that ascent, at least where it is serious, comes from a a special revelation. As it came to all of us as a special revelation, as opposed to general revelation. It's an evidence, their ascent is an evidence of grace that has been worked in their heart. You must be diligent in distinguishing contexts as you read the Word of God. What is that verse saying? What is the verses around it saying? What is the the chapter saying? What is the book saying? What has been the author been saying in his other letters? So, beloved, don't be satisfied with mere assent. Do not. This costs nothing. It is worth nothing. Mere assent. Now, giving mere assent is in an express faith in Christ. It may have an embodiment of knowledge, as we see in Romans 2, as well as a form of godliness, as Paul talks about in 2 Timothy. But having nothing but an embodiment of knowledge, nothing but an embodiment of knowledge, it's nothing but an some idea of truth in your brain. It's necessary, but that's not enough. When there is no power or goodness to change and transform the heart. Which is why Peter writes, Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. That's for all of us to hear. Next in verses 20 through 25, James offers proof that faith and works are seen together. So in verse 20, along with verse 17 and 26, James repeats his point, which is following the, the illustration that he's given. All right? He uses in this illustration two examples um, that in men's eyes are really extreme opposites to prove his point. I believe that's partly what James is doing here. Um, Examples from the era of the Old Covenant. First, the faithful example of Abraham, you know, the father of the Jews. You know, using his bold act of faith in offering up his son, the son of promise. Isaac, offering up Isaac on an altar. Why? Because God told him to do it. In verse 21, Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? 
Romans 4, verse 2, seems that it would deny what James is claiming here in verses 21 through 23. Romans 4, 2 reads, For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. Do we have a true contradiction here? Well, I would attest to you, no, we do not. James is speaking about really a unique justification that Abraham received regarding his faith for what he did with Isaac. Okay? Now listen and follow along here because uh, I don't want to get lost in this because it's easy to sometimes. Because we, we're so familiar with um, that we are not saved by our works that what James is saying here can be confusing at times. For Abraham, for Abraham the person, he was justified by God, you know, I don't know, some 30 years before this act of faith with offering up his son on an altar. You know, when he was called out of Ur of the Chaldeans. Called out to specially bless him. Now, when he offered up Isaac... It was his faith that was justified. You could say confirmed, okay? You could say confirmed. Confirmed to be true and right. For that command that God gave to him, it was to test his faith. Therefore, his obedience to God did two things. First, it renewed the promise of Christ to him that this would come, that the offspring would come. It renewed the promise of Christ to him. And secondly, it gave him a testimony and a declaration of his own sincerity, that he did truly possess a sincere faith. That is powerful to the believer. Assurance of faith is a beautiful gift from God. So understand here that in Paul's sense of justifying faith, a sinner is absolved, is is pardoned by a true faith in Christ. But in James's sense of using the word here, not James doesn't disagree with that. But the way James is using the sense of the word here, a, a believer is approved, is confirmed by a true faith in Christ. Okay? One of my favorite commentators in this, in this book, Douglas Moo, he, he comments that most Christians take their understanding of the verb justify from the writings of Paul. And naturally enough, we, w- we do. We would. Um, we take it from Paul. But because he gives this, the term a, a theological prominence. That's what he writes here. A theological prominence, which is foundational for biblical theology um, for soteriology, you know, our understanding, our knowledge of salvation. So specifically, Paul uses justify to denote God's initial judicial verdict of a pardon. Okay, it's that legal transaction, that pardon that's pronounced over a sinner who trusts in Christ, who trusts in faith. So justify in Paul refers to really, you know, how a person gets into a relationship with God. While in James, 
it means what that relationship, what that relationship under Christ, what it must ultimately look like to receive God's final approval. We are saved and being saved. Jesus spoke in Matthew 11 to the crowds, wisdom is justified by her deeds. In verse 22, we read first, it says, you see that faith was active along with his works. His his faith did not rest in a mere profession. Abraham's faith did not rest in a mere profession. It was operative. It was active. It was lively. It had efficacy. And it had an influence on his actions. It worked together with all the other graces that God was working in his life through his spirit. It doesn't only exert itself in the act of believing. It's not just in the act of believing, but in actions, in deeds. We also read in verse 22, and faith was completed by works. Faith gives value to works rather than works give value to faith. Faith gives value to works rather than works giving value to faith. Romans 14, verse 23 reads, But whoever has doubts is condemned if he eats, because the eating is not from faith. For whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. Faith gives value to works. So the phrase completed by his works in verse 22 means made known, revealed. You know, faith... Working together with obedience is made perfect. Hasn't James been arguing this case all along? Our faith is bettered, it's improved, it's strengthened as we act in obedience. Just as our physical stamina is improved as we exercise. At least that's what I heard. So um, These things work hand in hand. You can't have one without the other. They work this way. Truly works do not complete faith by communing any perfections to it. Those, those works among men are flawed. You know, whose works are perfect but Christ's? But what do they do? These works, they help stir up and animate our faith. This is part of what James's point is in this living wisely, this living faithfully. In verse 23, we see that Scripture was fulfilled, meaning that it was indeed, that it was seen that Abraham truly did have a justifying faith, that he truly was a believer, and that he, what, what happened was out of a true obedience. Scripture was fulfilled. Abraham was a believer in what happened. And and by use of using Abraham as an example, finally, in verse 24, we are told that his 
Obedience is sufficient evidence that a person is justified by works and not faith alone. Justified of what? Justified meaning cleared of hypocrisy. That it is a true faith that one professes. They're not being a hypocrite. You know, it is the hypocrite who calls himself Christian, but is void of the good works that must flow from Christ's indwelling spirit. That must come about. Friends, sometimes spotting hypocrisy in our profession is as easy as examining our own church attendance. I know this, that may sound harsh, but remember, James is talking about life and death here. Yeah, there could be someone putting on a show, coming to church. You know, church going does not equate someone possessing a true faith, a lively faith. You know, it could, it could be for show. But truly, what argument can you put up for hardly even coming to worship with God's saints on the Lord's day? What argument can you put there? You know, what does that show? There has been so many disputes about and false assertions made by the careless interpretation in the way someone interprets their their hermeneutics applied to verse 24. So so many false assertions. James is not arguing for a soteriology of works. He's not arguing for works plus faith or faith plus works, say, in terms of a saving faith. He's simply arguing a true faith that is revealed by good works. And just as faith without works is dead, works without faith is like constructing a building without a foundation. It won't stand. You know, who, who can stand before the judgment seat of Christ with just merely a presumed faith? And yet, beloved we, we must be careful not to believe that our good works merit God's favor in any way. This is important to understand as well. You know, Christ has already done this on our behalf, merited all the favor. He's already done this for us. You know, our Heavenly Father, he loves us with an unshakable faith, a love. And our righteous position before him it can't be improved because we share in Christ's righteousness it would be an insult and it is an insult to think that you know to God to think that our good works can persuade God to favor us anymore can you add to the efficacy of Christ's sacrifice his body and his shed blood? Can Christ's righteousness be increased, improved upon? 
Can you see how this would be an insult to God? To think that we can add to that? And yet, good works are a necessity. It is obedience. Now, how do we reconcile this? You know, this necessity against offend, you know, offending a holy God by presuming to think that we can you know, purchase a higher standing before him. By believing, believing the truth of what it is that Christ purchased for you. If you truly believe. And you're growing in the knowledge of Christ. And know this, that when an I and when others speak about not being able to persuade God's favor to yourself, since Christ is already perfectly done this, this does not mean that we cannot aim to please God every day. You know, our good works, if they are done in faith, they do please God. Our obedience pleases God. Our disobedience displeases God and may earn his loving chastisement. In verse 25, using what James may have intended again to be an extreme example, you know, something on the other side of the ditch among these Old Testament faithful, he uses Rahab, who is known and immortalized in the pages of Scripture as Rahab the prostitute. Poor woman. Well, some people might be tempted to throw, you know, their hands up in the air, you know, give up, say to themselves, I cannot compete with the legend of Abraham. Thank you very much for using him as an example. Not everyone can go as far as Abraham did in the testing of their faith. Who is the great pattern of all believers? But the least faith must produce works just as well as the greatest faith. And so James gives us Rahab as an example of a very weak faith. If she, if she had only said to those messengers that came to her, you know, I believe, I believe the God of heaven and earth that, that he has given you this, this whole land to possess. I have heard the stories of what he's done in Egypt. I, I believe those things to be true. Yet, I dare not help you. I dare not act on that belief. That profession of, the, of what she would have said would, would have been useless. It would have been a barren faith. Exactly what James is discussing here. But this belief prevailed so far with her that she did something that was incredibly brave. And very helpful for them. She gambled with possible danger. Um, can you imagine the tortures that she would have suffered at the hands of her fellow citizens if they had known she had done this? But she believed in what God was doing. That is special revelation that came to her in understanding this. 
It was indeed a great act of faith for someone who lived among these heathen people to be persuaded by the power of God, the God of Israel, that they had a right to that land. No one knows exactly how far her understanding was. It's probably very simple. Well, finally, closing out his argument, James, he repeats his point one last time in verse 26. For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. Verse 26, uh, James is a big fan of wisdom literature. Uh, We've talked about that. Uh, uh, Some have called the the letter of James as uh, the Proverbs of the New Testament. This verse 26 is what you would call an aphorism. Uh, It's a proverb, a very concise, memorable statement of truth. For as the body is apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. That's memorable. When the spirit, when the soul departs from the body, it's it's no longer alive. It is dead. I really wish medical uh, profession could go that far beyond determining if someone's simply brain dead or something. Who knows? Um, It's completely dead. But also, the same thing goes for the faith of a hypocrite. If it doesn't have any works to show for it, A worthless faith makes for a hypocrite. Beloved, James gives the church this passage as a warning. And we'd be wise to heed it, to follow it, to understand it. He gives us a warning for what will be revealed someday as really an all too familiar scene before the judgment seat of Christ. Many will be turned away to eternal punishment. Many who presumed otherwise. Now, I, I, I preach with the same sense of urgency to you all. It is each of our own responsibility to examine ourselves, uh, to examine our own faith in the Lord. The apostle has told us to be aware, to beware of a worthless faith that can neither save and makes hypocrites hypocrites who possess it. In summary, faith without works cannot save. Faith without works is dead. Faith without works is useless. Faith is made known and revealed in works. Faith cooperates with works. And a person is declared or really cleared of hypocrisy by good works. So James pleads with us to pursue a strong faith in the Lord. For a true faith, it gives strong encouragement. Encouragement to carry on. It sees assistance in God's power. Acceptance in in the grace that he provides. That there is rewarding God's bounty. And reward that also awaits us in heaven someday. When you are weakened with doubt and discouragement, what does faith say? Faith says to press onward. 
It is God who is with you, and He loves you. So are you discouraged with a weak faith? Faith may reply that you are weak, but God will enable you. Even a weak faith in the Lord God Almighty saves. It is an advantage. It's truly not so much of a discouragement to be weak in ourselves. It is an advantage. We are commanded to have this perspective. To be weak in ourselves that we may what? Be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his, his might. You know, beloved, faith, it breaks the power of opposition. And we are faced with that on all sides. Reminds what Jeremiah says, terror on every side. That's what it is for the faithful living in this land, sojourning. Not in the way that James, uh, Jeremiah is describing it, but we have dangers about us. There's a war battling going on. Now, if the world stands in the way of your duty, if it stands in the way of your duty, and it will if you are faithful, faith overcomes the world. It brings Christ into the battle. It, it heeds the Holy Spirit's replies and arguments that are made to your spirit. You know, reason itself, it would tell us that we must be for ourselves if we leave it to human reasoning. But what does faith tell us? That we must be for God. He is for you. He is for his glory. And the care of you, who his name is staked on. That should give you great confidence in the faith. Faith, by turning to the Lord, sees that really, truly, it is the only way to save all.